in the course of our series. And shortly, and there's a change of events or there's a change of scene as the soldiers then lead Christ out of the trial, the hall of trial, the courtroom, if you will, on to Calvary. And in the meantime, through this, the whole course of these events, Jesus is suffering particular things that are recorded in Scripture. They're recorded for a reason, and this morning I pray that the Holy Spirit would use the preaching of His Word and an understanding of the broader concepts of the Gospel and also accompanying texts through Scripture to remind us that every detail that is recorded in the Bible is significant and to remind us of the plan of God, even through these on the face of them, horrific events to accomplish His holy will. So stand with me, if you would, out of reverence for the Scripture, and let us begin by reading this text. Follow me as I declare God's holy word in Matthew, again, 27, verses 22 through 31. Here is the infallible word of God. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified! So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was, was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Again, as Matthew gives us the account of the gospel, the events leading up to Calvary. He reminds us of the significance of these moments where Christ as our sacrifice is prepared for slaughter to satisfy the terms and conditions, the atonement, that is the payment and the washing away of our sins. The significance of these moments, these details, this event, even the trial of Christ before Pilate has been universally affirmed by the Christian church throughout all ages and generations. All ages and generations, since some of the earliest moments in Christianity have confessed that Christ, quote, suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is a, a phrase that comes from the Apostles' Creed. It goes on to say of these events that not only did Christ suffer under Pontius Pilate, but He did so on His way to crucifixion, to death, and burial. The church has seen it as an unequivocal imperative. You absolutely must believe and confess that Christ was tried under Pilate, 
that he went on to be crucified, to die, to be buried, and to be raised again. The Apostles' Creed recognizes the significance of these moments, the significance of these sufferings. As we read the record of these events, it is stunning to view the sovereign hand of God accomplishing redemption by such apparently unruly means. Notice in the environment that we see here in the record of what's going on, how chaotic it must have been. I'm sure that there were those who were unruly in the crowd, jumping up and down, shaking their fists, rattling their swords, encouraging their fellow men to encourage those next to them to riot and to scream and to lift up their voices and to make a scene to get what they wanted by hook or by crook. As we behold this stunning scene, nevertheless the sovereign hand of God is all the while accomplishing redemption by these very events. A certain madness has possessed Christ's accusers. It's as if the whole crowd has gone insane. And with a rabid bloodthirst for His execution, they cry for the means or the mode of death. Most horrific of all, crucifixion. In crucifixion, the wrists and the feet are punctured with crude and oversized nails. They're driven through the flesh and bone of a human being. And they're fixed to a crude instrument of torture, a cross, bare wood set vertically, where upon this rack, the human body suffers, sometimes as history records, for days. Exposed an almost corpse that would involuntarily push up against the nails on the feet, causing excruciating pain that would shoot through the individual just to gasp another breath of air to fill at least a little the collapsing lungs that were being suffocated by hanging from the nails driven in to the wrists or hands. This is the picture of crucifixion, the gruesome and bloody affair, the infamous death by the, war, by the, by the nation who had invented War to a, or who had perfected war to a science, Rome, and had sought through with a no-holes-barred passion to put down any rebellion or any zealot movement against their authority by absolutely horrific means. So we see in this scene the screams. We, st- we see additionally the screams of anguish in our mind's eye. We hear them coming from those who would be tortured so. And for those who cried for Christ's crucifixion, crucify Him, crucify Him, and their bloodlust and sin, it seemed that only the anguish cries from someone tortured by this method was capable of satiating the bloodlust of this mob. Pilate had a priority. I must calm down the crowd by any means necessary. I, this cannot develop into a riot. The city can't be burned. We can't have another violent skirmish on our hands. Now, I prefer not to condemn any innocent man. Don't get me wrong, I'm a good guy. Pilate might have told you. But listen, the cost is too great. Whatever it takes, we must calm down the crowd. Do you know what it took? 
It took the crucifixion of our Messiah. It was the only thing that the crowd demanded that would satisfy their cries of gas, in these ghastly proceedings. Their morbid perversions, this social chaos, this utter bedlam. It was complete insanity that was erupting all around Jerusalem at this time. And, light, and yet, brothers and sisters, in light of these events, still Christ, even in the shock of His humiliation, perfectly obeys the Father, drinking down the cup of judgment for His people's sins that included these very happenings, as we have noted previously. He's still, these things are happening at the very same time. And as we look closely at these events, we see even here hints of His resurrection glory yet to come. Unbeknownst to those who afflicted Christ with these horrific accusations and sufferings, this whole scene that was playing out, let me submit to you this morning, includes foreshadowings of Christ's glory to come. That's a heading for today's message. The sufferings of Jesus foreshadow His glory. They foreshadow His glory in three ways. They foreshadow Him as judge and prophet. They foreshadow Him as high priest. And thirdly, they foreshadow Him as king and conqueror. What does foreshadow mean? Well, as the word suggests, if you're walking along a pathway, let's say on a bright sunny day, the sun's a little lower in the sky, and everyone's familiar with a shadow, you are, say you're looking at the ground and you approach the shady area, and there's a certain form to it, a distinctive shape, but you don't know what it represents. It's a silhouette that is uh, irregular in some ways, but it has a basic structure to it that alerts you to an image or to the reality to which it points. So as you follow that shadow, you can imagine eventually you get to the subject. And there you have, let's say, your dad casting a shadow and you as a kid um, just for fun, we're playing a game. You would look at the shadow, try to figure out who it was. It was awful hard to tell. Wow, Dad, you're tall. You look up, and there he is. This is kind of the picture of what foreshadowing means. It means that there is something of a shape, something of an idea, but as we follow it, it leads us to the subject. And I submit to you, even in the sufferings of Christ, by design, they are significant. They include within them shadows of events to come. They include within them shadows of Christ as judge and prophet after the tables will turn. They include within them shadows, indicators of Christ's high priesthood, the very work that He was accomplishing on Calvary and His office, which He fills even today, making intercession for us for our sins constantly before the Father. These events, the sufferings, are significant of Christ's death and the events leading up to Calvary. They foreshadow His kingship. And the fact that He is ultimately the victor in this story. So let us look at a few of these more closely. First, judge and prophet. The sufferings of Christ foreshadow His glory as judge and prophet. Primarily on this first point, they do so, let me suggest, by contrast. The literary use of contrast is prolific in Scripture. It's used all the time. Uh, it's things that are the opposite of what is the norm or what is glorious are often uh, employed to portray a certain truth. And here we have, if you will, the opposite of justice, the opposite of what 
righteousness looks like. The opposite opposite of what a king who is good and who is compassionate and who is righteous and uncompromising. The opposite in the text of what a good ruler should do and does do in cases where his wisdom is tried. And of course, the opposite is personified in Pilate, who is proceeding over this legal trial. The sufferings of Christ foreshadow his glory as judge in stark contrast to that example we find in Pilate. Verse 22, Pilate is frustrated. He has offered to these people a deal he thinks they can't refuse. I'll tell you what, it is a tradition to release unto the people a criminal at this time. And this strange tradition Pilate employs so that he doesn't have to condemn an innocent man. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a choice. On this day, I plan to release a criminal. I will release this man, Jesus Christ, or binary choice, one or the other. I will release to you Barabbas, the, uh, the perjurer, the murderer, the seditionist, this infamous, notorious criminal, Barabbas. Which, which one would you prefer? Again, in the introduction, what did we say? The only thing that would satisfy this crowd was the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They would not quiet down until they saw our Savior, the Lord of glory, hanging on that cruel tree. And so they refused Pilate's bargain. Pilate is flabbergasted, no doubt, and frustrated at this time. And in this heart and spirit, he says to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? You are so unreasonable in your madness I'm about to turn over this whole thing just to you to make it go away. They all said, let him be crucified. And in one last ditch effort, appealing to their better judgment, he makes a reasonable cry. He says, what? Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Justice has fallen in the public square. Righteousness is being compromised. The courts of this world are failing in their duty. And Pilate, as their representative, is about about to commit the unrighteous act that will be significant in all of history in delivering over not just an innocent man with respect to the law, but an innocent man with respect to sin, Jesus Christ. So when Pilate saw, verse 24, he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning took water, washed his hands. He basically turned him over to the crowd, Christ that is, and says, see to it yourselves. I've had enough of you. An abdication of justice. One commentary, Cambridge Bible, says the following, it is the curse of despotism that it makes fear stronger than justice. It is the curse of despotism that it makes fear stronger than justice. What this quote sums up is the fact that when despotism, rule of man, false authorities, and trying to hold things together by your own two hands of man is the operating, is the, uh, operating worldview, is the process that people rely on, it's what they trust in. When they trust in their own two hands and their best ideas, It makes fear stronger than justice. They get scared, 
and justice falls apart and they act in a way that is absolutely sinful and horrific. This is what happened to Pilate. Justice was suspended on account of fear. He feared the crowds and he ruled unjustly. Pilate was far more frightened than he was convicted to rule according to righteousness. Consequently, justice was hijacked by the mob. Notice in this picture who is standing again and who is seated. These are pictures of trial and authority. Pilate is seated. He is the ostensible. He's supposed to be the one in authority. Jesus is standing trial. What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture? This unqualified, unjust, reprobate, pagan sinner, although he wants to show a good sign of a, a, a good show of wisdom, collapses under fear and sent, and incriminates Christ, turns him over to this rabid mob and compromises justice. What's wrong with this picture? Jesus should be in the judgments on, on the seat of judgment, and Pilate should be standing before him. That's when the picture will be right. And so, in this text, we see by contrast a picture of what Christ will assume later. You guys recall in Hebrews chapter 1, how does the book open? Well, in Hebrews, the message there assumes the reality of all that has taken place in the gospel as the author declares now what life looks like after Christ has risen from the dead. And what does he say? He says in verse 3, he, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The situation is corrected. Do you see it? Christ now, where is he? He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is he in our text today? He is making purification for sins. And so by contrast, we see the ju- the Christ as judge. And this uh, passage indeed in Matthew is prophetic. The roles will be reversed. The tables will turn. Christ will assume his throne. And these events by contrast foreshadow what Hebrews proclaims and what we have celebrated even this morning in worship. Secondly, under this note of foreshadowing of the justice and and Christ as judge and prophet, consider the use of the law in this context. To get just a little background, because you might have wondered about Pilate's action here, turn with me while I introduce this section to Deuteronomy 21, 6-9. And again in our text, while you're turning there, Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. Rather, a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. What did this ritual mean? Where did it come from? Where did he get this idea? Well, it's interesting because this judicial ritual, if you will, this action of washing one's hands uh, in the context of legal proceedings is rooted in the law. There's reference to it in Deuteronomy 21. If we go back to this section, we see in verses 6-9 through the following. It says, And all the elders of that city, this is describing how to uh, rule justly in the case of a murder. If someone is accused uh, of a murder or accused of a crime, all the elders of that city nearest the slain man, someone has been found dead in the premises, now they're deciding 
what to do. So they shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of God, or in the sight of the Lord. In this instance in the law, there were some that were responsible for dealing with this uh, dead man, and, and uh, those who were closest, the judges who were closest, were the ones who were given the task to rule rightly in this case. And those who were not guilty for the man's death, they were, through this ritual act, demonstrating that they were clean, they were innocent. It was a statement to the people of assurance. Our land will not fall under judgment because we have followed up to the best of our ability to find out who's responsible for this sin, for this crime, and we have ruled accordingly. We may have exhausted our means, but we have done our due diligence, and you can rest assured, peace and justice will remain in this land. We are uh, honoring the terms and conditions of lawful order rightly. Is this what Pilate did? No. This is a perversion of the law. Although he referenced the law superficially, he washed his hands of the blood of an innocent man and then turned him over to be killed. Could we say that by this action, Pilate was not responsible for Jesus' death? No, in fact, the total opposite was true. Pilate was responsible for the death of Christ because it was his responsibility to judge him innocent based on the evidence that was provided for him. So when Pilate washed his hands of the matter, it was nothing but hypocrisy. It was, a, it was an external act. It was superficial. It meant nothing except his own condemnation. It was futility. The law was perverted. There was an abuse of the precedent. And these pagan, this pagan court could not hold up under the pressure. And the abiding standards of God's word were ignored, exploited, and abused. And this happens yet today. Even in our day, in the best case scenario, justice within human courts is an approximation. It's the best we can do given our limitations. But how many times in our day is the circumstance far worse than that? That we abuse the law to look for ways to wash our hands of responsibility for ruling rightly in a case. This is happening all over the place in our land. It's the heart of Pilate. We are excusing ourselves from the difficulty of preaching the law and word of God in all of life, especially in cases where it's questioned, the very premises question, and courts are apostatizing. They're abdicating. They are relinquishing the responsibility. They're failing before us. Was there hope under these circumstances? There is hope. There is one who will never wash his hands, so to speak, of the responsibility of upholding the justice that is required for every sin and every crime. And that one is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ Himself spoke to the people in Matthew chapter 5. And He told them, Do not think, in verse 17, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. As Jesus lived out his life, he was accomplishing the law with his perfect obedience. And when Jesus assumes the throne of judgment, as we see even in the record of the New Testament, he now can give all, who, uh, all of the faithful reassurance that in the end, there is a day of reckoning where Pilate, all of his accusers in all of history will stand before him and righteousness will be upheld. How can we stand before Jesus and not hear, depart from me, you wicked, you lawless one, into the fires of everlasting torment? How can we? Well, in these very events, Christ is purchasing the ability for us to be washed free of our sin. What Pilate desired is a reality for those who trust in Jesus. And we see this foreshadowed later as well. For now, we see in the sufferings of Jesus, by contrast, where justice has fallen, where the law is abused, nevertheless, by contrast, we see Christ gloriously set against this backdrop of darkness as our judge, the prophet, and the glorious one who proclaims God's law, never lets his word fall short and will rule all this earth perfectly. In the, final, in the final example under this of sufferings that foreshadow is the ruling itself. Pilate says, see to it yourselves. In the impulse of revolutionary rage, everyone was crying out in the crowd for the crucifixion of Christ. However, listen, Christ had prophesied his own judicial supremacy. Christ was sovereign over Pilate and would demonstrate his lordship in due course. But more than this, Christ was sovereign over the mob, and he would demonstrate his sovereignty, his lordship over the mob in due course. In our nation today, sometimes it's hard for us to imagine Christ being sovereign over the mob. I get discouraged, for one, when the majority seems to not care a whit about the things of God in our nation today, but only for themselves, and resorting incrementally and even faster and faster back to paganism. It's important to remember that there are moments in history where it seems like all is lost, and the enemy has the upper hand, but this is by sovereign design. Christ is sovereign over the king, and he is sovereign over the mob, and he will demonstrate as much in due course. Remember, in Matthew 25, Matthew 24, Jesus prophesied, what was going to happen to the prophet-killing city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have sought to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under my wings. See your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For those who are unrepentant and responsible for the death of Christ, he would come in the name of the Lord, but in his coming of judgment very soon, in A.D. 70, as history records, the tables would turn. And even in Christ's own death, there was a foreshadowing of the judgment, the heavy hand of righteousness that would come and perfectly exact what this people deserved in due course. Jesus prophesied, and history records these events. There is a few quotes from Josephus I want to read to you. He says, Having been scourged and tortured in very terrible manner, speaking of hordes and hordes of Jews within Jerusalem at the time of its being overrun by Titus, the normally 
He was known as naturally merciful man. But this uh, warring general finally has had enough of Jerusalem, exercises a battle campaign against it. And during this siege, it's recorded by the Jewish historian that people in scores and scores and multitudes were scourged and tortured in a very terrible manner. They were crucified in the view and near the walls of the city, perhaps among other places on Mount Calvary, and it is very probable that this might be the fate of some of those whose very persons who now joined in this city, as it undoubtedly was many of their children. For Josephus, who was an eyewitness, expressly declares, and here's Josephus again, that the number of those thus crucified was so great that there was not room for the crosses to stand by each other, and that at last they had not wood enough to make crosses of. This is from the Benson's commentary. There was coming a day before this generation would pass away where Christ as judge and ruler would return and there would be a reckoning. And it was dramatic. It was prophesied and it came true in history. And even the means of Christ's own death foreshadowed those events as Josephus records too many crosses to count littering the hillsides of Judea as those who were responsible for Christ's death now were surrounded by these invading armies. The justice of God is a weighty thing indeed. History records it. The Word of God records it. Consider its weight. When you do, you will treasure salvation from these deserved consequences that much more. Let's move to high priest. The sufferings of Jesus foreshadow His glory as high priest. First of all, consider atonement. What does Pilate do? Well, he seeks a self-styled atonement, does he not? He wants his sin, he wants his responsibility for these actions washed from him. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water, and as we've said, he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. Christ is the only high priest. He is the only one who can cleanse us from blood guilt. He is the only one who can remove the responsibility we have for our own sins. There is no other way to be cleansed, to be free. In theology, the word is expiation. It means to have something removed. May sin be expiated from us. The picture in the Old Covenant was the scapegoat. You remember the high priest lays his hands on the goat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people, and then what does he do? He sends that animal away. The animal is condemned so that the people may be saved. That's the picture. That's the symbol. It was only a symbol. Here, brothers and sisters, it is substantial. It's actually happening. The hands of the sinners are laid on Christ, and He is going to Calvary to make propitiation, which means wrath-absorbing sacrifice, for the sins of his people. But it must be noted, there's no other way. Pilate was not guiltless when he simply washed his hands. There's only one way for Pilate to be forgiven of his great sin. And that would be to be washed in the blood of Christ. To, ironically, to trust the blood of the man he was responsible for killing to cleanse him of his own blood guilt. Wow. What a powerful foreshadowing of the only true atonement. 
brothers and sisters, everyone, all mankind through all history, in spite of the ways we try to deny it, we all realize we are sinners deep down in our core. This generation, the last, and everyone in the future, even if they abandon or if, if they do not accept and confess Christ, they all have this sense of guilt that hangs over them by the cloud and they seek for ways to wash it away. How do we seek to wash away our guilt? We do so at Vanity Fair in John Bunyan's picture, you know, in Pilgrim's Progress. We amuse ourselves with distractions and pursuits and materialism and, you know, all these mindless pursuits. Vanity of vanities is our experience today. We're reliving the hard-lived hard lessons of the book of Ecclesiastes all over again. What is it? What is it that our culture seeks? It seeks to dull the lagging, the nagging guilt for their own failures, shortcomings, frailties, soon coming death, the fact that they are aging, the, re, the, uh, the remorse that they feel for what they've done in the past, the fact that they know they could do better and fail their children, their spouse, their friends, society. And so they wash their hands with entertainment ad nauseum, and it will not remove the stains. It's like Pilate pouring water over his hands saying, I'm not responsible for this man's death. It won't do it. It's self-styled atonement. We must recognize the only way of salvation. Only trusting in the blood of Christ who here is going to Calvary will give us the true expiation, removal of our sins. How is this done? Well, again, a foreshadowing of the sufferings of Christ as high priest. It is done. Atonement is accomplished that means the removal of sins and the payment for the same. It's done through His blood. His blood is featured in our text today. What did the people cry out? Ironically so. After Pilate says, see to it themselves, all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Whatever curse it may entail, we take responsibility for this man's death. That's what they said. Whatever we deserve for condemning this man to, to uh, death, his blood is on our hands. We willingly accept it. The most shocking words I can pretty much think of off the top of my head. But there's an irony to it. The irony is this, that Christ's blood either represents a curse or it represents the seal of a covenant. A covenant is a relationship of love, connection, affection, it is setting right again something that's broken. A curse, you know what that is, is deserving the worst of all circumstances on account of what the future may hold. Back in Matthew 26, Jesus had partaken in the very first communion. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it, verse 27, to them, the disciples, saying, what does he say? Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As these guilty crowds, the rabid mob, are spilling the blood of Christ and saying, Cursed be upon us, his blood's on our hand for doing so, this very act was the seal of the new covenant. And that blood that flowed from our Savior's brow, His side, His hands, His feet, was paying for the sins of His people. Now this foreshadowing is marked in the future, in the book of Acts. 
Turn with me to chapter 2 briefly. And let us notice what happens on the heels of these events. By this time, Christ had been buried. He had been resurrected and ascended. His disciples now commissioned to bring the meaning of these events to the world. And what do they bring the world? They bring the message of the gospel that His blood shed is their only hope. And they do so with this promise. Get to the end of Acts chapter 2. Brothers, what shall we do? In verse 37, the crowds now cry out in anguish. And notice the juxtaposition, the contrast. Before the crowds are saying, His blood be on us and our children. Now Peter's preaching and says, His blood is on you. You are the one who killed the Lord of glory, the Holy One of Israel. And now there's a change of heart as the Holy Spirit uses this gospel preaching to convict them. Brothers, they cry out in anguish, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, notice. For the promise is for you and for who? It is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The events of Matthew 27 were foreshadowing the gospel call. They said his blood be on us and our children. And very soon there would be a message that would proclaim his blood can save you and your children. Powerful indeed. And thirdly, consider sacrifice. What happens? Pilate, you know, he doesn't just turn Jesus over. Look to what he does. It says, verse 26, And he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate didn't say, you take, well, Pilate said, oh, you take the entire responsibility and action of this man's death on your shoulders. No, Pilate was sent to him to be scourged, to receive the price of our sin. Notice in Isaiah 50, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but there was prophecies of old that prefigured, that foretold these very events. It's speaking in the messianic first person, the suffering servant. This is Jesus Christ speaking from Isaiah 50, says in verse 6, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hide not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus says, I give my back to those who strike. This recorded hundreds of years before the event. I give my back to those who strike. I give my back to Pilate. I could call 12 legions of angels to deliver me in an instant, but I willingly lay down my life for my lost ones. And my cheeks to the pulling out of my beard, I hide not my face in disgrace from spitting. Isaiah 53, you may be more familiar with this text. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. The sufferings of Jesus foreshadow his glory as high priest. He is the atonement. His blood is the blood of the covenant. And his body was the sacrifice. And so we see him under the heavy hand of Pilate, his unjust rule, and the mob and their desires to kill him in their rage. We see him offering his back for the stripes our sin deserved as he is scorched and beaten. Later, of course, or it's already been recorded, that they spit on him and they buffet him. 
verse 26, it says, Then they spit in his face, they struck him, some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? The mockery, the spitting, the pulling of the beard, the abuse, the lashes, and the crucifixion death. Our high priest is making sacrifice for our sin. Thirdly, finally, this morning, the sufferings of Jesus foreshadow his glory as king and conqueror. There's irony again in the text. Notice how the passage closes, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put on him a scarlet, uh, and put a scarlet robe on him. Let me suggest to you that even in this scene of mock worship, there is a foreshadowing of events that will soon take place. These people are laughing their heads off in drunken glee, in sinful abandon of all reason and better judgment. And in their stupor and their ridiculous carousing, they have no idea who's before him. They could care less. They dress him up like a, as a king. They shout their insults and they gather a whole battalion of Roman soldiers to do so. There is a Gentile ingathering that soon will come after Christ dies, not just for his elect among the Hebrews, but his elect among all nations. And it is really something to look at this record and see that as these Gentiles are ingathering around Christ to mock him in worship, he will have the last laugh when in just pages in our Bible we turn over and there's another scene entirely. And Saul, or Paul, who was once Saul, when Christ intervenes, sitting on his throne of judgment and says, How long will you persecute me? How long will you kick against the goads? He's struck blind. And this once persecutor of Christians and Christ himself, because Christ so identifies with his body, is transformed. And what is his new mission? Paul's new mission to author much of the New Testament scriptures as he brings the gospel to the Gentiles and gathers them through his preaching to worship the true Christ in true worship. And so we gather this day. Powerful. The sufferings of Christ foreshadow the ingathering of the Gentiles. I invented a word called pre-enactment. The next thing that is foreshadowed in the text is ascension pre-enactment acting out what will happen in the future. Ascension pre-enactment. Listen to this. Verse 29, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed, right, representing a scepter, that object that represents authority in his right hand. The right hand is the hand of strength and rule and authority. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. It's interesting to see, even in the sufferings of Christ, a foreshadowing. In mockery, yes, but almost an event for an event, pre-enactment of what was going to happen in just a few short days. I've referred to Daniel 7, 13, and 14 time and again in Matthew's Gospel because it is a pattern verse. That's the one where the Son of Man ascends before the Ancient of Days in a cloud of glory and receives a kingdom. And this is what is anticipated in the Old Testament at His ascension. He ascends before the Father, before the Ancient of Days, and He receives a kingdom. 
He has coronated. He has given that crown. That scepter of authority is placed in his right hand. As we've read in Hebrews, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high and proceeds to rule, proceeds to reign. And so he does. What an incredible irony that what they are mocking, these Gentiles are mocking Christ for in our text will actually take place in time. The most glorious, powerful, cosmic, amazing, history-altering, shaping, event, coronation in all of time will take place and it will define all of time and eternity when Christ assumes His throne. Revelation chapter 1, Christ even in His dress, he's, they put on Him a scarlet robe, other uh, accounts say purple, the, the color there seems to indicate uh, an, an idea of royalty. But of course, in this context, it's to mock him. What robes and what power does Christ wear and attain in the future, in the real, in the uh, near future? Revelation 1.12 tells us as John sees the ascended and resurrected Christ, he, the revelator records, I turned to see his face that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Right? The Son of Man, now ascended before the Ancient of Days, receiving His kingdom, clothed with what? Long robe with a golden sash around His chest. The hairs of His head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. In His right hand, seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Represent his power and authority to judge, I might add. And then his face was shining like the sun in full strength. Verse 17, when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Which hand? His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And listen, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I went there and secured them. I am the victor over death itself. Lastly, this morning, the sufferings of Jesus Christ foreshadow His glory in His scepter returning to His hand. There's an interesting detail. They spit on Him, they took the reed, and struck Him on the head. Earlier, verse, chapter 26, verse 67 They spit in his face, they struck him, some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? I'm told in the Greek that slapping him and striking him, it's it's the idea of buffeting him at his temples, like cold clocking him of his head, uh, about his head. In our text today, they twist together the crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And then finally in verse 30, they take this reed and they strike him. What's going on? Do you recall Genesis 3.15, a prophecy all the way back to the ages when the enemy first thought he had the upper hand, deceiving Adam and Eve to sin? There was a prophecy that said, the seed of the woman will bruise your head, crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. Right here, this was the last chance that the devil, frustrated at every attempt that had preceded it, was working to try to destroy the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He was trying to crush his head, and it did not work. His plan failed. 
Instead, the power of Satan against Jesus Christ proved no more impressive than a reed bouncing off his head. But the scepter would return to the hand of Christ. If you turn to Psalm 2, Revelation 2, uh, 12, 19, you don't need to go there now, but you will read of the scepter in Christ's right hand. It's no reed. That reed foreshadowed the true scepter. It is a rod of iron. As the fulfillment of Scripture takes shape, Christ assumes His throne, proceeds to reign. We see in the Scriptures the power of Him doing so, demonstrated in passages of Revelation, like Revelation 11, verses 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of Pilate, the universal influence of Rome, that which the soldiers were part of and represented. The trial, the authority behind the trial where Jesus stood falsely condemned. That kingdom and every single other one of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. The scepter has returned to His hand. And when it did, He crushed Satan's head. Though His heel we see in our text, Matthew 27, was momentarily bruised, we see the triumph, the victory, our King and Conqueror assuming the throne as He proceeds through these actions unto glory. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped Him, saying, verse 17, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. The Jews raged against Christ. Pausing there for a moment. Pilate raged against His responsibilities in these proceedings. But Your wrath has come, the Scriptures say. The nations raged, but the wrath of Christ came. (laughs) And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That is the future, because Christ is King and Conqueror. Let me ask you a question. As we go back one final time to our text today, Consider the final action that this text records and the beginning question that Pilate asks. Verse 31, When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Sinners leading Jesus to the cross. The first question that we started with this morning in our text, Pilate asked of the crowd, he says, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ. Consider these two put together and consider what they foreshadow. We, I, we live in a day now where no longer does the sinners, do sinners lead Christ to His cross. That was one momentary a- event in history that in fact purchased the gospel which is now Christ leading sinners to His cross. Has Christ led you to His cross? And do you understand what happened there? And as you think about that, consider this question. What will you do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Will you bow in true worship before Him? Or will you seek another false atonement to make you feel better in this mortal coil, filthy, 
decrepit life full of sin and sinners? Which will it be? That is the question our text asks us today. Consider it well in this room. Some of you are believers and you can consider it with a sense of relief, joy, and worship. There may be some of you here today who have not considered it at the heart level yet. And for you, this is salvation. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, as we have opened your scriptures, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive them. I pray that the gospel, Lord, would profoundly move us to repentance and faith if we have not met you in this room. Profoundly move us to worship faithfulness if we have. I thank you, God, that every nook and cranny of this beautiful record that you've preserved for us preaches to us truths that outlast all time. We thank you that you rule and reign and that you have purchased our redemption. We look forward to those moments in glory gathered with all the faithful. In the meantime, give us strength to stand in faith that these things are certain as we confess with you, it is finished. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship you. Thank you for your sacrifice for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Praise God.